Nick Ninton, and welcome to Now to Next, the podcast where I interview some of the top experts and professionals all across the globe to talk about what's happening now and what you can expect next. Hey, Nick Nanton here. And before you get into this podcast with my good friend, Keith Ferrazzi, that has some incredible information that he shares, I want to let you know we did this as a live stream on Facebook. And for some reason, there's a weird glitch where his voice doubles a lot and we can't figure out why. But I also want to make sure you had this awesome info. So we tried to minimize it as much as we could in post-production. Realize we know there's an issue, but I wanted to make sure you still got this info. So I published it anyway. Of course, if it drives you crazy, I advise you just to skip it. But if you can hold in there, he's got some great stuff to share with you. So I hope you enjoy the episode and sorry for the issue. Hey, everybody, Nick Nanton here, and welcome to this latest edition of Now to Next, uh, the podcast where we talk about what's happening now, as well as, of course, what is happening next. I'm going to introduce my guest here today. He's a big deal. I'm excited to have him on here. We've run across each other a lot of times, and uh, he's got a great new book out today, which we're going to talk about. Let me introduce you very quickly by bio to Keith Ferrazzi, and then I will bring him on. Uh, Keith Ferrazzi is an author, entrepreneur, and the founder and chairman of Ferrazzi Greenlight, a research-based consulting and training company. Keith is a New York Times number one best-selling author of Who's Got Your Back and Never Eat Alone, two great books. His latest book comes out today. We're lucky to have him today, Leading Without Authority, in which he takes a look at today's changing working world and the importance of leading without authority and a term he called, he coined, which I've been using a lot. I actually didn't know he coined the term. I'm glad we can talk about it, called co-elevation. Last little bit, Keith frequently contributes to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Fortune, and many other leading publications, where he shares things he's learned in more than 30 years of experience from entry-level employee to the C-suite to founding his own companies. He takes those years of experience and breaks them down into practices and solutions that he brings to every engagement. So please join me in welcoming my friend, uh, Mr. Keith Ferrazzi. How's it going there, Keith? Hey, Nick. Thank you very much. What a great introduction. If my team sent you that, I have to thank them. <laughs> well, so I talk often about the way I operate and prepare because I think we all, you know, our mutual friend Dan Sullivan talks about operating within your unique ability. And one of the things that I do is I prepare by not preparing. That is how I work because I realize that you can't skip any steps in life, but you don't have to do them all yourself. And so my writer, Katie, reads everything I need to know. And she writes me a little like three page article and a bunch of questions. And so I, my job is really to review it and know what I'm going to talk about to be relevant on point. I used to just wing it, which is, you know, it works, but it's not nearly as relevant as this. So that's Katie. So we can get it to you and you can use it uh, in any way you like, man. Yeah, please send it. Katie sent it back, number one. And number two, you shouldn't give her name out because now you're going to have five other podcasters calling her trying to get her on board because she's really a gem. Good for you. I, I love it, man. Excellent. Well, hey. Uh, well, her and I can co-elevate, so we'll we'll play the game. Let's talk a little bit about where you came from. You were born and raised outside Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What was it like growing up, Keith Ferrazzi? Well, thanks a lot for that question because it's so meaningful today. Eight years old, I was sitting at my father's dinner table. My dad was an unemployed steel worker most of my young life. You know, my old man, Italian immigrant, and the steel industry was crashing around us in the 70s. Lots of families, including our own not enough money to put food on the table, to be honest. And um, dad used to talk about how the management of his company really didn't listen to things that the workers were saying. And I sat and I, and I just was so committed at that time to growing up and making a difference in the way we work and the way I thought it was going to be through politics. And I, I dabbled in that a bit and realized it wasn't. I really do believe that the work that I'm doing today is my mission and my purpose. 
And at a time like today, you know, when I go to bed and my head hits the, t- uh, the pillow and I realize that I don't have to worry about paying rent and I don't have to worry about putting food on the table, but I know that there's too many families today that do. And the work we do and rebooting, rebooting American commerce, rebooting industry is necessary today. We've been talking about it for 20 years. This crisis has brought it to the forefront. And I think it's a blessing in many ways because we're we're forced to do what we've been needing to do for a long time so that we don't go the way of American industry back in the 70s. We need this turnaround now. I love it. I learned that you caddied uh, at a golf club. That's it's, it's a lot of very successful people have done that. And I think part of it is when you meet people who are successful, you start to learn that, wait a minute, they're not that different than me. And you start to learn they just operate differently. They know they have a different type of wisdom and they operate differently. Tell me a bit about what you learned through that process and what you know what you learned doing that. It's interesting because the first thing I learned was that there was a gateway to opportunity that I hadn't been aware of. So you know what nepotism is. It's the being birthed into a family that gives you a particular advantage or opportunity. Right. And I was always jealous of that. My dad got me into a small private school on full scholarship. And I always felt a little jealous that I wasn't born into one of those rich families. What I learned when I was a caddy was that you could develop your own nepotism. That it was actually through the relationships that you built on the golf course with the rich people that you were caddying for that opened up opportunity. There was a particular woman named Mrs. Poland who was the best female golfer in the country club. She played all the time and she had me as her caddy. Now, my old man told me something when I started caddying. He said, Keith, show up at the golf course a half an hour early. I'm like, Pop, why? There's nobody there, right? And he'd just say it again. And I knew as soon as he was doing it again, I, I called it immigrant Tourette's. He'd blurt stuff out. I would have no clue what it was. And I just did. I just showed it up. But what I realized was showing up a half an hour early gave me information that helped me be a better caddy. It helped me know where the pins were placed, know how the grip were cut, et cetera. Mrs. Poland, as a result, took me under her wing, asked me to be her caddy consistently, put more money on our table or as much money on our table, 20 bucks a day as my mom was making as a cleaning lady. And she started then asking me questions like, what do you want to do with your life? And she started introducing me to other, other golfers that not only could be additional clients of mine as a caddy, but she started introducing me to other golfers of people who give me advice on what I wanted to do. She opened up nepotism. She opened up the world of opportunity. And what I learned at that moment was that wanting to achieve great things is great. Having a strategy and a plan is great, but not knowing the relationships, not having the relationships, that's poverty. That's poverty. You know, you and I were talking a little bit earlier. I have a foster son who's 25 and uh, now he is. I have two of one I got at 12, one I got at 16. Now they're 21 and 25. And what I'm trying to help the older one recognize is that at a time like this is the time to begin to build the relationships that you need for your future. Right? People are actually more attentive, more aware, more present than ever before. And all of us have an opportunity, and this is you know to the new book, all of us have an opportunity to begin to lead with or without authority. I don't know if you can see it there. Yep. Right? Leading with or without authority is about leading by having a vision and then creating the relationships that you need to achieve that vision. It's not about 
position or title anymore. It's about your ability to enlist people in a vision that you have. I love it. And there's so much in there. Obviously your entire career and, and your work is based on how to relate to people first, how to create relationships and now how to relate sort of in the new team building collaborative, which the environment shouldn't be new, by the way, for collaboration. We just have dealt with these old school things forever. Before we dig too much deeper, I want you to talk a little bit because I learned sort of your strategy, your thought process for the foster care system, which I really admire. Of course, there's so many people who are willing to criticize systems. No system is perfect, but you, you said, well, maybe the foster system isn't perfect, but what can I do about it? Tell me a little bit about your philosophy and what you've done, you know, just with the two kids. I know you've, you've helped other people, hundreds of other people see your point of view and help other kids in the foster care system as well. We have a foundation called Greenlight Giving. So the company's Ferrazzi Greenlight and then Greenlight Giving is our 501c3. And what we do in that is we apply the philosophies that we bring to the Fortune 100 organizations. We apply that into uh, systems that are in need of social change. And I identified foster care as a real problem. You and I could talk about it, but 80% of those people who are in prison today came from foster care. Chew on that for a second. Yeah. I mean, the downstream ills of having children who are abused at an early age and then treated like transactional units, passed around, and then at 18, given a bag of clothes and told that that's it for them. But now they kicked it to 21 and they think that makes a difference. It doesn't. What we found was that what they didn't have is they didn't have social relational acumen because the earliest relationships of their life were broken. And then they were treated like transactions in and out of households, never having developed what it's like to trust never having developed what it's like to co-create with a family unit. But I was trying to teach my young boy discipline because he wasn't studying. I remember one time I withheld his, his allowance that week. Now, by the way, this is a kid I had in special ed schools based on some of his LD needs and also uh, some of his behavioral challenges. So I was spending tens of thousands of dollars on this young man. But one week I withheld his allowance. Well, he knew well enough. He called his lawyer. And his lawyer called the social worker and the social worker called me and told him I have no right to withhold the allowance, right? So the kid's smart, but they also, the idea of embracing a family unit or being fearful of being ostracized from a unit such that they would just pull the plug and go to the next house, right? Right. So it's that mindset. So what we decided to do was we created a system. There's a wonderful foundation in Los Angeles called Kids Save, which we decided to support. And then we exported this with Governor Hickenlooper to Colorado, and it's now ongoing there, and we're exporting it across the United States. We were, would take kids that were interested in being adopted, and but were past the age they were likely to be adopted. We'd organize them into par small peer-to-peer -peer support groups, sort of like an AA chapter, but for kids, you know, just kids that are going to support each other. And then those kids, as they got into homes like ours, which are not normal homes. We weren't in it for the money. We were parking the money in trust funds for these kids for their college later, right? Right. And we would also take the foster parents and put them into peer-to-peer -peer support groups. And it was that peer-to-peer -peer support that was the transformative element that allowed us to take over a third to 40% of kids that were previously unadoptable out of foster care into permanent homes. And that's been truly extraordinary, but it's the same philosophy that I live with. 
which is this principle of co-elevation. The kids needed to co-elevate with each other, going higher together. The parents needed to co-elevate with each other. Otherwise, as isolated units, it wouldn't work. You said a moment ago that collaboration isn't new. No, collaboration isn't. Collaboration is what you do when you have to because you don't have enough resources to get the job done. Co-elevation is what you live in when you realize that the only way to be transformative and get big jobs done is to do it with others all the time. So living in a state of co-elevation is living in a state where you're committed to a mission, but you're committed to another group of individuals, where you won't let them fail, where you have their backs, right? Where you cross the finish line together as a team, not just dip into old school collaboration until you get this project done and then you go back to coexistence. Yeah, I love it. And that's what I spent the last decade making over 65 documentary films now. And I, I we wow. live in co-elevation because I can't do what any of my team can do. And they don't do what I do. And we just push on to the next project, the next project, the next project, because we're driven to lead, educate and inspire through media. And that happens to be our format. And I love hearing the way you describe that now. So you got a full scholarship at the prep school, just to give people a bit of an idea. Uh, if they haven't already realized that they should be listening to you, you then you win at life, Keith, uh, in a great way. You went to Yale, you went to Harvard Business School, worked for Deloitte. You became the, the youngest Fortune 500 chief marketing officer for Starwood Hotels. And you learned some pretty big lessons at Starwood and from the transition from Deloitte to Starwood. If you could impart a couple of those lessons to us today, what would those be? So this book, Leading Without Authority, was written for two audiences. So one audience was for the young individual out there, or not even just young, any individual who aspires someday to be a manager, aspires to be a leader. Yep. But you have to recognize you don't need to wait to be given authority. You just have to lead. So when I was a young man at Deloitte, I heard the CEO talk about wanting the organization to be one of the peer organizations to Accenture and McKinsey. At the time, it was called Anderson Consulting. And I, I bought into that without being asked. I called a professor and said, I'd like to do a research project on what is the best practices in professional services marketing. And I started doing a project in lieu of a class while well, I was a summer intern. I was a summer intern. And it took me six months to finish this project. But I developed a compendium of rules of professional services marketing that hadn't existed before. Because I had interviewed all of the heads of marketing for all these companies. And guess what I did with it? I shipped it to the CEO of Deloitte. And I said, a number of months ago, I was in an audience and I heard you say something, sir. Here's what my cut on that pathway would be. Imagine how blown away he was. No partner had ever done this, right? Right. Anyway, I can tell you the story, but the book tells the story. I ended up being the chief marketing officer in my 20s. It was stupid, right? And I became the youngest partner ever elected in the firm. I mean, I was nominated as the youngest partner ever elected in the firm. And here I was, a ridiculously young individual without position or authority who had worked his way into a position of positional authority. And then, by the way, this book delineates exactly how to do that. Because everyone always says, oh, you don't understand the organization I live in, blah, blah, blah. The chapter two of this book is, it's all on you. There's six deadly excuses that stop you from living the life that I'm telling you you should be living this way. And then I go to Starwood. By the way, your writer is extraordinary. She picked all this up. I'm so impressed. <laughs> then I go to Starwood and I totally screwed up. I totally screwed up because here I was a big shot. I had just been the chief marketing officer of one of the biggest professional services firms in the world. Now I'm going over to Starwood to be the chief marketing officer and head of sales globally 
of one of the most in interesting, innovative new companies. We were starting at W, you know, St. Regis, Star Fred Guest Program. And I thought I had made it, right? All the work that I did when I didn't have authority to get authority, I forgot. And I started leading with authority. And the head of Europe who kept trying to tell me that Europe is different than the world and needed to run things differently. I, on the other hand, had this idea that we were going to create a global brand. Look, I wasn't right. He wasn't wrong. And nor was he right, nor was I wrong. But the answer was it needed to be a co-creation. And my ego and arrogance and belief in my way ended up in a situation where ultimately the joke was he became CEO. <laughs> and so he became CEO and eviscerated the global marketing function and said, screw you. You know, we're only going to have regional marketing, which was a shame because I caused that, I think. I mean, it was, it was my fault and my behavior that we reacted this way. We could have had a co-created global marketing function and regional success. But it was my, my way that caused him to eviscerate the marketing function and caused me to decide it was time to move on. And I learned a lot from that experience. And I, today I teach executives all over the world how not to lean on their authority. So I'm not only inspiring those who don't have it in this book, Leading Without Authority, and giving them a roadmap, but I'm also boxing in the ears of those of us who think that we should have it and we spend too much time clinging to it and fighting for it instead of letting go and being extraordinary with others. I love it. And that book is out today on, on launch day. It's a big day. So thanks for taking the time. Tell me this. So your previous two books are really, most people would put them under the category of, of networking. And I don't know about you, but based on the typical networking meetings, networkers, like that term is sort of a negative term. And it's a, a corny, but relevant term. Your network is your net worth. Like my entire career, like most people has been built right. on providing value to others and they've been provided value back to me. That's a, it's a great exchange of relational capital. It is networking, but now I actually want to get into a, a bunch of the lessons from, from this book. Before you do that, yeah, let me yeah. just make a pause. Yep. Here's the crazy thing about it. So I had written every alone because somebody gave me a crazy big advance because I had had a lot of young success and somebody said, how'd you do it? And I was interviewed by a gentleman who wrote an article about me in Inc. Magazine. And I said, here are the 10 reasons I was successful. And I just really thought about it. And I was a major artist. Publisher read that and said, you should write a book. Now, I didn't consider myself a networker. I just considered myself an ambitious young man who first focused on other people and what they wanted to achieve. And then I busted my butt to achieve that. And then that gave me permission right. to achieve great things myself. So I wrote this book. And then I went off in my career. I didn't think that my books had anything to do with my career. It was just a book that because somebody gave me a quarter of a million dollars to write it. Yep. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, over the years, what I realized is that my work helping leaders in entrepreneurial organizations, you know, now we are opened up. We coach the top 100 companies in the world, but we also coach entrepreneurial organizations. We've got products all up and down the, the suite. The reality is, we live in networks. That leadership is in networks. If you want to achieve something, the question you should ask yourself is, what am I trying to achieve? And what network of people do I need to make my team in order to achieve it? Right? That all of a sudden opens up an entirely way to different things about leadership. So Adam Grant, who a lot of people know, was funny because Adam Grant, professor at uh, Warden, read my first book. And it inspired him to want to be 
more research oriented around generosity. And they happen, happened to be his dissertation and helped him launch his book, his first book. Now I, he wakes up and he reads this book. And he said, Keith, we've all been talking about network theory and organizations. You've given us the first roadmap on how do you actually lead within a network. And so it's interesting that come full circle, had I been smart when I wrote Never It Alone, I would have realized that it was the core of my coaching work with executive teams. And it took me 10 years to catch up and realize it actually was. That's funny. Well, that's how it works. Your subconscious is ahead of your conscious a lot of times. But what I love about what you truly, you just articulated is, and where I was going to go with that is most people think of networking is how do I meet enough people to get what I want? Like this is literally what they think as opposed to how do I provide enough value to enough people that they want to help me on my mission, which is truly leading with getting them on board the train with where you're heading. And so your first two books, again, that are considered networking, which again, that term is just so clouded at this point because it's been just cheapened in so many ways, let's be honest. But when you think of it in the depth of which it's meant, it is just putting together a group of people to accomplish a common purpose. And they're great books and people should check them out. All right. So I want to move in now to Leading Without Authority, which is the book out today. And the biggest principle in the book is co-elevation. We've talked about it already. I love that you put a name to it because it's very natural to most people who've gotten ahead in life. It's very natural because you learn. I've done a bunch of projects with you know mutual friends of ours, Peter Diamandis and Jack Canfield and, and a bunch of others. And it's the only reason that I ever got those deals is because I brought value that would co-elevate us. Hey, let me bring something to the table that you're not already doing. You don't already have access to. And I think you'll like it. And it was an easy yes. And once we get that easy yes, we go, okay, so how can we do more together? And we create a relationship. And as you know, the higher you climb the chain of relationships, it's not mercenary, but if you're not constantly providing value to each other, it just breaks off. I mean, when you get to a person who's the CEO of a Fortune 100, unless you're their cigar buddy, which they probably don't have time for, quite frankly, they probably only have time for a cigar buddy who's who's providing value in a way that's making them think differently, introducing them to other interesting people. Unless you're constantly providing value, those relationships are going to go away. And to me, that's when I look at the term co-elevation, learning, reading your book, that's sort of where I go with it. But dig in a little bit with co-elevation a little bit more and, and, and yeah. share what I've missed. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned somebody that happens to be two people, by the way, Jack Canfield and Peter Diamandis are two dear friends. And Peter's probably my best friend. And I remember years ago being at the TED conference and watching this bold, brash, audacious guy running around TED raising money for a space launch. Right. I mean, it was like, what? And, it, it, and I just fell in love with his energy, his insights, his acumen. And yeah, I started serving. From the very beginning, I was like, that's somebody I want to make sure that I'm on his team. Right? And so yep. I, I love this idea, and I want you to hear these words. First person that you invite onto your team, you're actually inviting them into their team. Or you're inviting you into their team. Right? Yep. So it was all about Team Peter. And I love that because I love being of service to great people. I always have. It's yep. just been my thing. I've always loved, and that's what I loved about my work. I help entrepreneurs and I help leaders serve their mission and achieve their mission and get bold breakthrough outcomes that didn't get there before. And Peter's one of those individuals that I now co-create with all the time. You know, yep. Every week we're talking. By the way, I'd love to hear more about your projects with those guys. It sounds like you're doing some extraordinary work. But the big thing to me is for everybody listening, you know, what is the kernel of your vision? 
What do you want to try to achieve? Right now, in this disruption, you have an opportunity to disrupt. You have an opportunity to find unexpected growth, and you have an opportunity to avoid risk where everybody else is milling about in the mud. You can be like a G6 through this thing. And it's only going to happen with an extraordinary team. And don't think that means these are people you're hiring. Peter's on my team, right? I mean, today's the book launch. Peter is actively working on my book. He sent something over to Tony Robbins and said, hey, Tony, you know, Keith, make sure you know, do this. It's like, these are team members of, of mine. Who is on your team? Right. So your ability to have an extraordinary team at a time like this, independent of who reports to you, is your pathway to success. That's the key of co-elevation. And it, co-elevation is when you make a commitment to a vision, but you also make a commitment to each other as humans. And when this book was originally written, I was originally thinking that I was writing a book about coaching. Because so much of my work is helping a team become each other's coaches. That's a big piece of what I do. I help executive teams, not just because I'm their coach, but then I help them coach each other. And it's not just the job of the CEO to be the coach. It's the peers coaching peers. Then I say to them, who else other than this formal team needs to be on your team? Who do you need to bring on board? And as you bring more and more people on board, you co-create together. But as you co-create, you've also got a coach. Because everybody's got to be in alignment with each other. You've got to give feedback. You've got to give candor. You've got to tell people what you're thinking. That's when real innovation occurs. Real bold thinking happens when the team has the capacity to speak truth to each other. I was on the call this meeting to a Fortune 10 company CEO. And his point is, my people are too polite. I said, no, they're not. They're too political. Because if they're polite in a room, that means they're talking behind each other's backs. We can't help it. So we need to unveil to them the ability to be high-integrity professionals speaking truth to each other in the room because we care about the mission and we care about each other because we wouldn't dare not speak truth. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's what co-elevation is about. In this book, I have created a new social contract in business. And that's why, like the very first person, Brian Cornell from Target, quoted in the book, says, this is the new operating system for how we need to be working in organizations today. The system of hierarchy, control, silos, these things break down shareholder value. And we need to reboot. And we are rebooting whether we know it or not. We're building radically adaptable companies today. We're building transformational organizations today. But I want to make sure we don't go back to work. I want to make sure we go forward to work. By the way, that's my new foundation. It's called Go Forward to Work. And by the end of the week, I'll launch the site, GoForwardToWork.com. And I have collected over 100 executives who have all committed to share their best practices, what they've learned in the last two months, so that we can all put on these best practices and go forward to work, not back to work. That's amazing. And, and yeah, for the, anyone listening to this archivally, this is just during the pandemic of COVID-19. I'm in Florida, you're in California. We're starting to ease restrictions, trying to get back out of the workforce. But this... Uh, this entire live stream podcast I spun up, I don't know, eight weeks ago now is completely the result of this. And I'm having a blast reconnecting with old friends and I'm getting a ton of opportunity out of it. It's been amazing, but I never would have done it had it not had it not come down to this. Let's go so we don't forget. And because we have a few minutes left together, the book is launching today, Leading Without Authority. Make sure you go get a copy of it. You reveal some rules and techniques, really eight rules and techniques for co-elevation and you already addressed one of them, but I want to make sure we don't miss the point. Number one, who's your team? Tell us about that. 
And obviously that is how you accomplish everything. So this is the point I was making earlier. If you're bound by a belief that your team is who reports to you, then you will not be transformational. You can't be exceptional. This is what I learned from Peter. Peter does an X prize because he wants to throw to the world the ability to innovate, not just the traditionalists. It wasn't NASA that won the first X prize right. for space. The X prize for space created SpaceX. So it's not about the traditional way of thinking about who your team is. It's the most bold and innovative people that you need to get the job done. And the great news is, now, in a remote working environment, they're ubiquitously available to you anywhere. I just wrote an article that will be coming out in Harvard Business Review in a couple of weeks about how boards of directors are better and their governance is better in a remote environment because now boards can have experts popping in and out at five-minute increments without any problem. You don't have to ship somebody on an airplane and pay their expenses and their rate. I mean, it's amazing what you have available to you in this new world of remote work. I spent $2 million of Cisco's money about four or five years ago studying what are the new people rules in a remote world. Our research institute started defining how do you do remote team leadership? How do you do re run remote teams? We published all of that at a website called virtualteamswin.com, and nobody cared. <laughs> now a lot of people care. Your ability to be unbounded in who's on your team is available to you at, at your fingertips. So that was, that's chapter one. A totally different value assignment to that's going to happen too, just because of, yeah. you used to be able to hide behind the, well, if I've got to get an airplane for two days and I've got to, my fee is such, it's going to be interesting to see where that leads. You also talk about in the book, the concept, accept that it's not all on you. And, and one of your statements is true leadership doesn't presume to have the answers. In fact, the opposite is true. The best leaders start with an open mind and invite others to seek solutions with them. That's a very different approach to what we have seen, I would say, in the management institution of the last hundred years, essentially. How do people start thinking that way? Well, again, it starts with recognizing that you will create mediocrity by yourself. And all of the great examples show that. But then there's another chapter in the book that's actually the, that's chapter one. Then I contradict myself. And, I, and, and chapter two is it is all on you. Meaning, once you identify that your job is to build these relationships to create greatness, what happens if some of those relationships don't want to play the game the way you want to play it? And the point I make is you have no right to step away from your mission just because people aren't playing the game the way you want them to be played. The example I use is sometimes my son. I mean, this is a kid who had suffered abuse and he, he knew how to dole it out. And at no point did I have the right to say, when you behave like my son, I will be your father. That is not an option. And so you as a leader have to persevere through difficult people, people who don't have the same mission that you have. And you've got to be an entrepreneur and figure it out. Right. And so I give six excuses that people often use. And I try to take those excuses away from you as to why you're not leading without authority. So that's chapter two, which is actually the opposite, which is it is all on you. Got it. And you talk about again, we've talked about these principles. I want to distill them down a little bit. Earning permission to lead. That's really what we are after now, because what we need is we need people on our team. That's how we're going to that's how we're going to transform the world. How does one go about earning that permission? Serve, share, care. It's the three pillars of earning permission to lead. As I mentioned to you early on, the golf course lady 
I served her by showing up half of an hour early at the golf course. You've got to show up a half an hour early at the golf course for everybody, quote, on your team, right? Service. It's just like I did to Pat Lacanto. He obviously, as a result of that service, he made me the chief marketing officer of the company. Share. Authenticity and vulnerability. We've been talking about it for years. Brene Brown has studied it. I studied it in Who's Got Your Back? And you need to recognize that being your authentic self draws people closer to you. It develops psychological safety, like Amy Edmondson talks about, and trust. So you have to be an individual that creates an environment around yourself that invites people in authentically. And that, that's been a tenant of my work from Never Get Alone to Who's Got Your Back to Leading Without Authority. That kind of vulnerable leadership, it, it exists today more than ever existed before. And ultimately, that leads to real care. When you care about your teammates, you can achieve great things because you can also kick each other in the butt because the next chapter talks about real co-creation. The next chapter talks about your ability to co-create with a group of individuals, collaborate, as you used to call it. I call it co-create, where you're leaning in and you're breaking through old barriers to create new, bold solutions that never existed before. That's great. Now, one thing that I absolutely love because I talk so much about storytelling, I've learned through all my work with individuals and companies across the world that branding is nothing more than storytelling. And a great brand is nothing more than a story that other people want to tell for you. You talk about the importance of sharing your story so that others can connect with you. To me, that's what makes connection possible when we find like pieces of our story that we say, oh, wait, this person is like me. Okay, so you have foster kids. I don't, but I have three kids. We can start there. Right. What I used to say is you don't have to share passions in common. You just have to commonly share your passions. Yeah. If you hear about my passion for fixing the foster care system, then you will have empathy for me through my passion. If I hear about your passion through whatever it is that is, is, of, is of importance to you, we build a bridge. And as long as that is authentic and vulnerable, we build the bridge. We build the bridge. And you can't get there by holding it inside. The only way is to share, right? I mean, you already talked about that sharing. I love it. You also talk about the old work rule, which is so relevant of to convince your teammates to tackle a project or mission, you must make a passionate and persuasive case for it versus the new work rule, which is to invite others to join your mission. How is someone who's been leading the old way for so long, how do we get them to start thinking? Because that's an insecurity, really. How do I stop commanding and start inviting? I've always had this vision of leadership in the past, whatever, which is people are literally clinging, clinging by their fingertips to an old set of work rules that don't work anymore for them. And, and they just have to let go and realize the floor is only two inches below them, which is the rest of the world that's really winning. The disruptive companies have been leading like this. My biggest challenge is, and I work for some of the unicorns that have come out of the Bay Area. At the beginning, they co-created. At the beginning, they co-elevated. Strong group of founders defying all odds. And then they get a little bit bigger, and they go hire somebody from the Fortune 100 to tell them how to run business. And they end up adopting the same principles, and then they get disrupted by the next guy. So we need to begin to lean into this model of co-creation, co-elevation. And a part of it is just small doses of experiences. There's a great phrase I use in the book. You don't think your way into a new way of acting. You act your way into a new way of thinking. So what I try to do in the book is I try to put all the practices. What in practice do you do? How do you bring candor into a room? How do you run a collaborative problem-solving discussion that gets better outcomes 
than the bold collaboration we used to do. So I get into practice, really distinct little practices, and that will awaken people that, ah, this works. Got it. So number one, the first thing people need to do is go out and buy Leading Without Authority. So do that here. And then what's parting advice, Keith, as we go, what are the most important things you want people to take away from this? Well, I think the most important thing is right now in our most vulnerable times in, in society, the crisis going on, just going on around us, we don't know if it's coming back once we get out. We don't know anything, right? I would say pick one individual who is an acquaintance of yours today, but you respect that one individual is an acquaintance of yours that you respect. And it could be a person that works for you. Could be a person that works in a different part of the organization, but somebody to respect. And I want you to invite them to a conversation where you unveil the idea that you would love to get to know them better in order to co-create a better way of doing things in whatever genre you want. It could be just the two of your careers, and it's just a sort of a buddy system, similar to what I talk about in Who's Got Your Back, or it could be around a particular project, right? Where you have a, a rough vision. You're like, listen, we really could define a new product for this new era. What is that new product? You want to just, just chat a little bit about it and then invite that person into a co-creation and see where it goes. If you read the book, you'll start to understand what little breadcrumbs do you draw that help that relationship be successful and be sustained. But I think it just starts. It just starts and it starts today. That's great. Uh, I know there's going to be some people who have an objection that, oh, what if I can't reach that person? I will tell you that I got my relationship with Jack Canfield and Richard Branson through FedExing them iPads with a video on them telling them how I wanted to work with them and what I wanted to do. It was a few hundred dollars, but most people just asked for something. I just said something that was worth a few hundred dollars. So they knew I was serious uh, and I made a good pitch. And so anyway, there's always a way to reach those people if you can provide value. We've given a lot of secrets on today. Make sure you go out and, and buy Leading Without Authority. Keith, thanks a ton for joining us here and Now to Next. And I hope to have you back on before your next book. And then I, I can't wait to see what you write next. Thanks a lot, Nick. I appreciate it. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes.